problem is we have to replace three key players in our nope. lineup. What's the problem? Same as it's ever been. We've got to replace these guys with what we have existing. No, nope. what's the problem, Barry? We need 38 home runs, 120 RBIs, and 47 doubles to replace. The problem we're trying to solve is that there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's us. It's an unfair game. And now we've been gutted, like organ donors for the rich. Boston's taking our kidneys, Yankees taking our heart, and you guys are sitting around talking the same old good body nonsense like we're selling jeans. One and all, have your seats. The national anthem will begin briefly. I'm your host, comic Nick Muniz, back for another edition of Nick's Nonfiction. The boys of summer have returned. Michael Lewis, his second time on the program, breaking out his Hollywood movie in book form, Moneyball. A strange brotherhood of amateur baseball theorists go all in and change the game forever. Michael Lewis, our economist, our boy, he's bringing derivatives matrices over to the game of baseball and he changes the sports forever takes place around the season of 2002 the new york yankees were in a winning dynasty they had a payroll of 126 million dollars tampa and the oakland a's our team of interest today they got 40 million to spend These poor guys, with their personal computers, integrated it into the game and hacked the Matrix. The commissioner, Bud Selig, he called the A's success. It's an aberration. This is an upset to the game of baseball. The rich teams are supposed to get richer. Lewis, he brings in Paul Vockler, one of the Federal Reserve's head chairmen, to analyze the game of baseball. It's a rigged game until these guys... Paul Podesta, Jonah Hill in the movie. He goes all sabermetrics on their ass, figures out how to quantify the game. It's not just these old guys who, the scouts, yeah, this guy, he knows how to hit with power. That's not a batting average. He hits with power. Oh, this guy over here, he's a good rookie, but he's got an ugly girlfriend. You know what that means? Low confidence at the plate. He's well-shaven. The fans are going to love it. This isn't going to win you games. Michael Lewis takes his mathematic approach, and he's saying we got to buy as many wins as possible. Really great story today. It's a allegory overall for testing crude and inaccurate data that we just take for granted. For keeping it light this episode. Ins and outs. We're finding AAA rookies, low-cost talent. It's going to apply to your business, and I'll draw a big picture. Make sure you guys are checking out the Patreon page we've got going over there. The bourgeoisie versus the swoletariats this month. We just had black rednecks, white liberals, Thomas Sowell, a full book over there. Follow Harry Shin on Instagram's free funny memes every damn night. About the author, a boy, Michael Lewis. We'll go through it quick. He's a financial journalist and an author. He has been a contributing editor to Vanity Fair since 2009, writes mostly on business, finance, economics. Lewis, born down in New Orleans, attended Princeton University in Jersey, graduated with an art history degree. What? After attending the London School of Economics? Hmm. Remember from Liar's Poker, he got chummy with the Solomon guys over there? He began a career on Wall Street during the 80s. He was a bond salesman. Go back. That's great episode. Holds up. We're going to double down on that one when we read about Enron. 
he said all these books influence the next one. He's got 10 now. And we might end the trilogy on the big short to pay homage to Michael Lewis. He writes more creatively than Malcolm Gladwell, who we just had. Personal favorite. He started his own podcast, Who Hasn't, Against the Rules, it's called. It aired April 2nd of 2019 for the first time. He had Malcolm Gladwell on, Jacob Weisberger. He sees the trends. He's an economist. He learns to articulate them well as an author. Big Short's going to be epic, but like uh, Spider-Man. Remember the Tobey Maguire trilogy? Any big, the Lord of the Rings, the Star Wars, the second movie is always the best. Moneyball is an absolute home run. We're going to have some fun today. Eight chapters. First ones are a bit heavier. Chapter one, how to find a ball player. On a spring day in 1980, we're down in San Diego. There's a group of prospective Major League Baseball players. They're all showing off for the talent scouts sitting on the bleachers. The 1980s era of baseball. This is trading cards are huge. It's the Sandlot era. But up in the bigs, the guys are shooting up on the regular. Barry Bonds is blasting them out of the park. The scouts are making million-dollar decisions. And to Michael Lewis, these are often million-dollar mistakes. On this day, 1980 San Diego, the scouts are shouting at the ball players. It's time for the 60-meter dash. You know, in football, they do the 40-yard combine. The guys run it in five seconds about. Our hero, Billy Bean, is trying out, and he ran the 60-yard dash in 6.4 seconds. Billy is the kind of player who stands out according to the old-fashioned methods, the crude ranking of ball players. He's 17 and six foot four, kids 180 pounds and batted 500 in his notoriously hard high school league. It's unheard of. Non-baseballers, you get to hit a third of the time, one half. This guy's the next Mickey Mantle. Lewis, he creates a mood of uncertainty. He's suggesting the talent scouts who admire Billy aren't looking at him with a critical eye. And once a scout makes up his mind, he sees whatever he wants. They romanticize the players, as everybody does about baseball overall. So once you have, oh, that kid, I saw him steal a base down in Tampa during spring training. I'm telling you, he's going to be the next big thing. Telling you, nobody's looking at any sort of statistical analysis. At the time, Jong Ward was the best, I'm going to butcher names today, best recruiter he had a single-minded focus looking for high-value athletes and John Ward made Billy the offer for the New York Mets he was reluctant to accept because he got a full ride to Stanford his mom saying take it slow you can always play ball mature probably get better and his dad's like once in a lifetime opportunity you got to do it Billy takes the signing bonus $125,000 to get bought up through their farm system the parents invest his bonus in some shady real estate venture promptly goes bankrupt. Billy, he's trying to live out his dream, though. He's over in New York living on a dirt floor tin shack. He's getting to play baseball. And if you've seen the movie, they don't portray his early career well. He floated around some teams in the Midwest, got close to winning championships, called himself the Forrest Gump of baseball. He's just always in the background, but everybody thought he was going to bat 500 in the major leagues. It was so overhyped. Quote from the book was, Billy Bean could have been anything. Instead, he was just another minor league baseball player, and not even a rich one. It's the backstory for Billy. 
and Lewis takes us all over the timeline for the story. He got tempted by the money and maybe jumped too early on the career. Drawn at big pictures, baseball players basically grow on trees in America. So Billy Bean, by not capitalizing within the first couple of years, he missed the monorail to Derek Jeter level success and admiration, getting traded everywhere out of the gates. We're going deep on Giambi and Damon today, who started with the A's prodigies. It's uh, rare, and it doesn't usually pan out. So now Billy's 40 years old, and he's the GM of the Oakland A's. And his job is to oversee all the farm teams, their minor leagues, their major, obviously. He has to trade and acquire players. He's doing everything. Billy was talking to his team. This is around when he's 40. And the talent scouts are um, doing their old-fashioned way to recruit for the 2002 season. And they just lost Giambi Damon and Inghausen, three of the biggest players who are going to go on to be some of the biggest superstars in this era currently. You know, Johnny Damon, the caveman from the Red Sox. Giambi was the power hitter first baseman who won rings with the Yankees. Billy Bean, he's like always just missing the victory. And he goes, I hate losing more than I like winning. <laughs> That'll come up later in the end. He really wants to revamp the team for this 2002 season. It's greatly portrayed in the movie. He's sitting at the table with all of his old head scouts in the shitty A's club room. And he's like, we got to ask the right questions. It's not who's going to replace these people. We don't have the money to compete with teams with three times the budget. We got to ask how does a team like us win against them? We're not. Lewis is always like, you got to ask the right questions. Billy wanted to try his luck on this pitcher, Jeremy Bonderman. This kid pitches submarine. Nobody was about it. He has absolutely no say in this boardroom. And so he goes to the Cleveland Indians and poaches one of their recruiters. It's this 25-year-old kid. He's straight out of Harvard. He's using his mathematical analyzation of the draft process. His name is Paul Podesta. His name is completely different in the movie. The guy that plays Jonah Hill studied economics at Harvard. And this guy is saying you could use math to gain a huge advantage in baseball. You don't need money to buy the best players. Paul identified many sources of biases in the draft pick. And he's sitting and listening to the old curmudgeons in Billy's draft room. And he's like, these people are generalizing from personal experience. When I was a rookie, the guy that made it all the way won the 60-yard dash. <laughs> Paul Podesta's going, your guys have a tendency to pay attention to the athlete's most recent performance. Got to look at the overall trends. It's like an equation. You got to eliminate all of these human biases to find who's most consistent, not who's most talented. Lewis was talking about Grady's toolkit, which was that old-fashioned. It was like a five-point method. Can he run? Can he hit? Can he field? And can he hit with power? What's the difference between hit and hit with power? We measure how fast a fastball is now. Great Bambino, that guy could hit with power. If you have 40 beers and have sex in the locker room, like the 1920s Yankees, that means you hit with power. In the baseball, the GMs, they have the right to control the players' salaries for six years in the minor leagues. And so Paul Podesta is also going, we can create our own superstars to send to other people. They're going to make it much bigger here, but they still got to convince the boardroom that they're going to try this new method. So this older scout, 
Dick Bogard. His name's Bogey. Dick Bogey, Dick Boogers. He points out that the high schoolers have bad makeup. In other words, they have bad character and focus. And this is the only time that Billy agrees with one of his scouts just because Billy has a personal bias. So he's not even pure himself. Billy's like, yeah, I got drafted in high school too, and you don't even know if you have stellar focus. Chapter 2 takes another flashback, wrapping up one here. Billy points out, I want this kid Nick Swisher. And everyone's saying, this kid is uh, not standing out. And Paul Podesta's just like, look at the numbers. We're discussing on-base percentage rather than what 40 time they have. Jeremy Brown was another guy that they just threw on the board. Everyone's like, we got to replace Giambi. The fans need to see a big name up there to try to sell tickets again. He's like, no, we're going to try to win a championship. They say, Jeremy Brown, this guy has a record number of walks in the league. They're like, we need power hits. We need guys to get on second. It's that old thing your coach always used to tell you. A walk is as good as a hit. And you just want to spit sunflower seeds in his face and say, nah, coach, I'm putting this one over the fence. (laughs) All these little disagreements, they're adding up. Bogey, he's going, this is why you got traded over Daryl Strawberry. These guys were using their crackpot methods. Bogey, the oldest scout, is calling out Billy for trying to change the method. And Paul Podesta is like, statistically, there is no Billy Bean up there. Billy was actually one of the most consistent offenses in baseball. He wasn't just one of the overhyped talents. And that brings us to chapter two called The Curse of Talent. Chugging that ice water. Michael Lewis with his Pulp Fiction timeline. We're going to the beginning of Billy Bean's career. He's in the Mets feeder program. Daryl Strawberry was the other rookie with the Mets that they were going to see who's going to be the player who actually pans out. So in the early months, everyone thinks it's going to be Billy, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Strawberry takes it. Billy batted a mediocre 220, and his roommate Lenny Dystra was interviewed by uh, Michael Lewis for the book, and he's like, he could have been a promising player. He was just bringing girls home every night. He wasn't, (laughs) uh, Brad Pitt plays him in the movie, checks out. Lenny's going, I wasn't even half the player that Billy was, but I had single-minded focus concentration gave me endurance in the big leagues, and Billy couldn't keep it. Billy did a stint with those Mets training camps until 1984, and then he was sent down to the minor leagues, which is like the worst thing in baseball. He has to do it to one of the guys later on, but he knows how it feels. Billy moved back and forth between uh, Detroit, Minnesota, and Oakland, so that's probably why he wound up with the A's. His reputation in the bigs became the guy who was destined for the Hall of Fame. just never happened. He knows it, though, so he's like living in some sort of hell. He's got to do something to correct his mojo back in the Lewis time machine, and he's <laughs> managing the A's in 2002. He's talking to one of the resident sports psychologists, Harvey Dorfman. says a lot of players have trouble with failure, and instead of teaching Billy how to cope with failure as a player, his coaches tried to have him use his anger instead of like uh, Tiger Woods famously goes after a bad shot I give myself 10 seconds to think about it and then I got to move on and think about the next one Derek Jeter he kicks a girl out of his apartment makes them sign a sex waiver and gives them a goodie bag 
thinks about the girl for 10 seconds, forgets him for the rest of his life. <laughs> Best players got these meditative uh, ways to go about things, and Billy was just harboring his anger. Lewis throwing some psychoanalyzation into his bestsellers. We talked about Sandy Adelson, GM of the A's, who decided to give him the job. He was like, you're going to be the first player to ever become a GM. Use that responsibility wisely, which he does at the end. He goes through his character development. We don't need this whole through plot in our show today. At the end, Billy's talking to the old players that he's drafting to get a couple good years out. And he's like, just make an example for the younger guys. In the beginning, he wouldn't even go to the baseball games. Wouldn't associate with his players in case he had to cut them. When he turns it around, he breaks the curse. Sandy Adlerson was the guy who gave him the chance. The A's were going through a series of major changes since the 70s. Were always known to be a risky team. Extremely small market. Like we said, they're on the same with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Those are the most looked down upon people in the Yankees conference. These next chapters is when it gets really interesting. It's all the backstory you really need. Chapter 3. Sabermetrics. Bill James, the father of Sabermetrics, a very controversial figure in baseball. He's the guy who invented that term, and he is written out of the history books. If you talk about Bill James, you lose your career as any sort of manager. He tried to crunch the code. He worked at some like tuna cat food processing plant his entire career, was just obsessed with baseball, never played it. He's like, this is a mathematical game. You can cheat the system. Everyone ignored him. They didn't want the stability of their career and game to be threatened. So Bill James was ostracized by all of baseball, self-published one of his collections in 1977, and it went viral. whole thing was pretty unremarkable, except for one section which critiqued fielding statistics. He's going, fielding basically doesn't matter in the game of baseball. It's a game of how many runs you can put up. In the longest A's winning streaks, they had high-scoring games. The A's first baseman couldn't throw the ball. He was an ex-catcher. He didn't know how to field a ball. They knew the secrets to baseball. You just need to get people on base and score runs. James was the first to propose this new approach to the game. He called it the range factor. He basically threw out fielding statistics overall. He's going, this is an arbitrary definition of success. You know, errors are built into the scorebook. If you're, you can't do any sort of statistical analysis if there are errors. That's just randomization. So most of batting averages don't matter either. That's pretty random. And Bill James also proved that pressure statistics are completely inconsistent. Oh, this guy, he knows how to put it over the fence under pressure. Pinch hitters don't matter. It's not like they're more consistent than a normal guy. Bill James was destroying the dogma of baseball. You're not allowed to question things. <laughs> it is cool to watch someone make a diving catch in the field. As long as you put one in the field when you are at bat as well. Baseball is a very two-dimensional game if you break it down enough. Every single at-bat is another battle that you could break down until later, a derivative. Into the Lewis time machine, we're going to go back to 1860 for a minute. We'll come back to Bill James as well. 1860, there was this British journalist named Henry Chadwick, 
and he was pioneering the concept of box scores. And there was just cricket at that time. Oi, there's a load of bollocks you knocked over my wicket. Don't make me throw you out. It's hard to throw on an English accent when you're talking baseball. It's such an American game. (laughs) We invented the damn sport. Think about even bowling, though. They tried to do box scores for that. There's probably some way that you could hack the perfect 300 game in bowling. Chadwick's scoring system was saying, each player walked is an error. So this was just another way to look at the pitching statistics and saying a walk is just as bad as an error. As a pitcher, that's just about the worst thing you could do. You're giving up free bases. You're expecting every pitcher to throw a no-hitter. In the 20th century, based off of uh, Chadwick's writings, RBIs became so fetishized, it altered the way people were building their teams. RBIs, also, really not a big deal. Oh, this guy, it's the same thing. (laughs) He knows when there's someone on second that he's really got to dial it in. Unfortunately, there's so much less autonomy to a baseball player than that. We want to romanticize it so much. It's a Victorian game. Also, stealing bases is economically irresponsible. It doesn't pay off. Like we're doing the Lewis approach, you're trying to buy wins. You're not buying players. Every win has its cost. One of the great lines from the movie, Billy Bean, Brad Pitt was talking to one of the Spanish players, and he's like, man, my entire identity, I'm known, I get paid to steal second base, man. Billy Bean goes, I pay you to get on first, not get out at second. It's not worth it. The next player gets walked too, and you got a runner in scoring position. Risp is more important than RBIs. What Lewis said before is this new range factor is enough to change how people play. Chadwick, 1900, Bill James, 60s. These guys both nudged the game forward a little bit, and Bill Bean was the guy who was ballsy enough to put these sabermetrics to the test. Sabermetrics really don't matter that much. You know, guys who really think they're smart and have their fantasy league teams are going to quote the batting average and shit to you all the time. You got to give them money ball. (laughs) Be like, you want to draft players who get the most walks. Fantasy baseball is broken in that sense. They're honoring sabermetrics, the federal chairman, the Paul Vockler. This is like mixing market analysis and baseball, so stay with me. It's going to get Illuminati later. In the 80s, Bill James' story wasn't over. Him and this guy Dick Kramer, (laughs) legend, his name should be Richard Kramer. He just went for it. Cram and Dick, they started a business called Stats Inc. And they were employing scouts to use their own method. These guys became millionaires. And it was shunned by the baseball community. And so this is why Billy Bean had to be so under the radar that he was going to try the method. This Stats Inc. company, it was bought by Fox in 1999 for $5 million dollars. Fox never decided to do anything with it. It's almost like they bought these guys out of it. They don't want the game of baseball to be broken. But Lewis's point is that it already is with the rigged monetary method. Really interesting chapter about Bill James. That guy's demonized by traditional baseball. Chapter 4, Draft Day. It's going to be a lot of names in this one. 
And if you've seen Moneyball, you remember that scene from the movies where they're going back and forth with the secretary. He's got four people on hold. Well, I'll trade you this guy for this guy. Well, you better call back Mr. Johnson from the Indians because I don't think he was willing to make you that offer anymore. I'm not going to try to confuse you guys here. There's going to be a lot of names, but you will recognize these people are huge in baseball right now. Bill Bean touched all the superstars inappropriately in the locker room. It's the morning of the amateur draft. Bill Bean contemplates some of the unlikely players. Steve Stanley is so unimpressive that no scouts even listed him. Jeremy Brown is this overweight outfielder. <laughs> Can't cover any ground. Fielding doesn't matter. All of the scouts are mad at Bill being off the bush. Brings up Swishnicker again. Top prospect and a high school player, Denard Spann, refused to sign with anyone for less than $2.6 million. The Rockies were super distracted with him. Bill Bean was able to get Nick Swisher while they were caught up in all that. In the room of all the old head scouts that are just wasting their time, Billy and Paul out here aren't reckless gamblers. They're card counters. Let's get into the deep stuff. In 1999, Major League Baseball, the organization created a commission to examine the inequities of pro baseball. They hired four famous people, some president of Yale, some senator, some CEO, and of course, the ex-chairman of the Federal Reserve to look into the subject of baseball, concluded the game is wildly unequal and that the biggest teams will continue to get bigger. Paul Vockler, our shady Fed chairman who was mentioned in Liar's Poker, this guy was directly printing money and giving it to Solomon. <laughs> the highest value money you can ever get your hands on. No interest. Lewis is dunking on him. He's like, baseball is so set in stone. Then how did the 1999 A's go 87-75 with a quarter of the money of the pre-existing roster? This was before they did the schoolyard draft pick he's going with a third of the money the a's still came out with a really good winning record so paul vockler <laughs> this is some rich kid who's holding a fake position like a world bank diplomat paul vockler's like yes it is just like the keynesian economic system of the united states where the millionaire teams will continue to be mcmillionaires and billy bean's like okay there are flukes in the sabermetric system of baseball where lower teams can win so the A's have their friggin' superstitious good luck as well as their trading system now. <laughs> like when you play baseball from a young age, the coaches are like, never step on the third baseline. It's bad luck. If you're losing, you have to turn your hat inside out for you to cause a hitting rally. They're teaching you to rely on dogma in the dugout. <laughs> There's the one kid who's sitting on the bat and the handle is halfway up his butt. Baseball is an individualist game. There were some of these players on the A's who figured out the Paul De Podesta method without looking at any of the statistics. Like They just felt it out as a player. By the end of that 2002 season, basically every player on the A's took a first pitch. Why are you swinging at the first pitch? Learn this pitcher, see how it's coming over the plate, watch where you can see the release from. It's a waste of an at-bat if you ground out. <laughs> I almost had a three-pitch inning once, and uh, we were like 12. The other team's coach made the kid take a pitch. I should have just threw it at the kid's head. It's smart. That's how you wear out a pitcher. you got to play smarter, not harder. 2001 draft day. 
They lost three of their best players I told you about. Johnny Damon was the big one. This guy was going to be the next face of baseball. Red Sox took him, turns into the caveman. Red Sox will win a World Series two years later with the De Podesta method. Spoiler alert. It's kind of after the book. whole chapter is showing you that their trading method is saving them a whole lot of money. Interesting, though, that <laughs> the guy that we trust to regulate the macroeconomics of the U.S. can't even figure out how baseball works. Paul Bockler. You know, they say baseball is a very Masonic game. Four bases, 90 degree angles in between, 90 times four, 360 degrees of a compass, 360 degrees of Freemasonry. Baseball is black magic to summon demons and see the little boys in tight pants. Chapter five, <laughs> Scout's Honor. Early 2002, here we are in the season. The Oakland A's are playing the Yankees. Before the game, the A's gather in their tiny clubhouse, least charming estate in baseball. Michael Lewis is actually at the game to report. Learn about Paul Podesta here. <laughs> He's like real weird during the games. Everyone's having beer and hot dogs. He's like, I don't drink. Drinking kills brain cells. I can't analyze baseball statistics with hot dog nitrates running through my brains. Everybody's got their freaking little superstitions, even though they're so to the book when it comes to trading. Great writing from Michael Lewis. He's in the clubhouse. Um... He found out that Paul De Podesta was offered a GM position with the Blue Jays, and he never told Billy Bean. Would have broke the guy's heart. This would have made Paul the youngest ever GM in baseball history. Says no. They have real good chemistry, those two. Bill Bean starts going to games because Paul is there. This particular one between the Yankees and the A's was so high profile because Jason Giambi, the guy who took the A's pretty far for such a bad team, was just traded to the Yankees. And the A's picked up Jeremy Giambi, his younger brother. If you remember all the stories about him, he was the carny of the MLB. He was a strip club frequenter, a pot aficionado. So no team would take him. Baseball is a, you got to have your chin shaved. It's an old-timey sport. This kid was given lap dances in the locker room. I'll skip the story for now. He is a pretty reliable player. Everyone thinks he's going to be the next coming for the Oakland A's. He's going to build the dynasty. Bill Bean gets pissed. They lose this game to the Yankees. They're losing the entire first half of the season, and everyone hates Bill Bean. Jeremy Giambi, this little partier, is the highest paid one on the roster, and he's still dancing, having fun in the locker room. Billy Bean hates losing more than he likes a gold medal from time to time. He fucking dumps an ice bath onto Jeremy Giambi's head, fires him in front of everybody. He's like, I'm going to spend all this money partying in the locker room. This is not the sound of a winner. Complete silence is the sound of losing. Time to contemplate. How do you get back on top? So he's gutting the program mid-season now. And the whole thing was the friggin' coach on the field, the one who kicks dirt onto the umpire, dresses like an eight-year-old with the high socks, that coach in the dugout. This guy wasn't putting on the field all of these wild cards that Bean was spending his time drafting. So they still have a shit team, and they're not even trying out the method. And Billy Bean's like, I can't tell you what to do because this is your job. We have a He should have fired the guy midseason. Instead, he just starts trading Jeremy Giambi, trading all of the players. 
this guy was relying on. He breaks down the roster to 25, and then they start winning games. That entire series, though, with the Yankees, it was kind of like the turning point for the season. Like I said, they sold Jeremy. They took the whole series against the Yankees. It was like a David versus Goliath. How did the lowest-paying team just beat the biggest team? And they have their old superstar as well. Billy Bean's happy. He thinks the theory is proven. That ain't enough. 2002 season, they pick up this guy, Hatterberg. Seems to have no hole as a hitter. He was the uh, ex-catcher I was talking about that hurt his hand. And what good is a catcher without a good hand? Oh, he catches the ball. You got to be able to throw a guy out 180 feet away at second base. That's one of the hardest throws in baseball. It's got to be accurate. You got to bust your knees and get up from a squat within literally three seconds. Guy can't throw the ball anymore. A's take him, put him as a first baseman. And Jason Giambi, that power hitter first baseman, he couldn't feel the ball that was more than five feet away. This guy would just flop over. Big Chungus. <laughs> In 2002, Hattelberg. He had no flaw as a hitter. Paul DePodesta was like, this guy is maybe the most consistent offense in baseball since Billy Bean. He's played by Chris Pratt in the movie. Tells every guy in the clubhouse, you know, what's your biggest fear in baseball? Uh, I never want to see a ball coming my way. There's a very big spectrum of players as well. That's why you got to have an interactive coach. Pretty cool chapter there. Scouting, playing the Yankees. The method's working. Chapter 6, The Trading Desk. It's late July 2002. The season is taking shape to see who's going to make it into the playoffs. You got the A's and Cleveland playing. Maganti was one of the players that both teams were trying to get their hands on. And there was just a bit of a rivalry throughout the book. Cleveland and the A's were taking each other's players. So this late July game, um, this guy Maganti gave up five runs, no outs. It was blamed on the coach, Art Howe. He's shitting the bed for the entire A's franchise they probably could have had a record season had this guy not sat in the dugout crossed his arms blowing bubbles thinks he runs the show the GM thinks he runs the show the GM's got to beg for money from the owner from friggin Mark Cuban (laughs) let me go off topic for a minute do you see that Mark Cuban he is put on the market gifs of himself as a trading they're called like non-fungible not refundable non-fungible tokens Lindsay lohan is trading herself as an nft this is the future of the market paul vockler is overseeing this shit our economy is a meme i'm 24 years old this shit is ridiculous elon musk the one of the richest guys tweets out doge that was a meme from my life and it's worth more than Ford Motors. Economy's a meme. Mark Cuban can sell a gif of himself, publicly trade it. He owns all of baseball. Like, give fucking Billy Bean a little bit more money so we could figure out how America's pastime actually works. <laughs> we could have a uh, baseball, like, tuned out to the perfect steroided-up hitter. Versus a pitcher with some slingshot arm. (laughs) Baseball could be bio-humans, but Mark Cuban's got to make new refungable tradables. 
What do you think the old heads in the market think about these guys revamping it? People don't like the new trendsetters. Big theme of the show here, the trading desk. Billy Bean, he wants to get rid of Mike Maganti. <laughs> that guy almost blew the game. And this, the trading desk, was more so about trying to make it so the field coach can't ruin the franchise. He picked up Ricardo Rincon, a closer. Kind of was going against his own method. So Lewis was dropping in on games at this point. And they're in the middle season. He's saying Bill Bean is getting a little emotional. Maybe this is what was influencing him as a player on the field. Trying to go deep and, I don't know, who knows what's going on in this guy's head. Carlos Pena was mentioned a bunch here. Traded with the Detroit Tigers and the Yankees who overvalued him. So he was just able to use him as leverage to get Ricardo. He's using the fact that the Yankees have such a big budget and will overvalue his players when he really doesn't care about how much players are worth or how they could field. <laughs> Even if you got a one eye, one leg, if you could get a walk, you are on the Oakland A's. Carlos Pena, huge. He was talking about Mookie Betts as well. Mookie was made huge on the Red Sox. Sox are really good at making these Manny. You got Big Poppy. All those people have like commercials, have their own clotheslines now. In L.A., <laughs> they're freaking making murals of Mookie now. So they got Ricardo Rincon. They're looking good for the end of the season. Take us to Chapter 7, The Human Element. If you know baseball history, you definitely know this period. If uh, you've seen Moneyball, this was a really fun part. They start going on their winning streak. They win 16 games, the Sweet 16. ESPN picks up the story. They win 17 games. That beats the 1940s Philadelphia A's record. 18 wins. They're in 1910 with the Brooklyn Bombers. Then comes along the 20th game. It's everywhere. They've got an 11-0 lead against... It's pretty bad that I don't remember who it was. <laughs> they have Orange. I don't think it was the Tigers. I'm really sorry that I don't remember that. It may have been like the, the Astros. They have an 11-0 lead. And Billy Bean, he's not going to go to the game. They think it's the curse, so he goes back. By the fourth inning... It's 11-7, and this is a fucking embarrassment. Like <laughs> You just had the 20 streak in the bag with that big, a fucking 11 goose egg. How are you letting this go? The guys just started to choke. Bill James, the old nut job, used to argue that psychology always pulls winners down and builds losers up. So now that they're on a bit of a winning streak and they have an 11-0 lead... Maybe the guys get cocky. Maybe it just messes with your head when you're winning for that long. You got to get checked. And it's a little known in baseball, but the Red Sox actually hired Bill James for a while. They were trying to fix the curse of the Bambino forever. <laughs> it's like one of those magazines. Baseball hates him for 10 reasons. Here's why. The Sox were always taking these chances. Bill James is right with that psychology. The Yankees, they kept winning and then they got too big. After this, like, 05 era, they haven't been winning. You know, they say the dynasty's back now, judging all the new guys. I'll believe it when I see it. I was like a 12-year-old with a fistful of rings on. 
during this game, <laughs> the stadium is completely packed. They're on the longest streak maybe ever in baseball history. Ninth inning, score gets tied 11-11. They don't know what to do. They think they're about to blow it in the most embarrassing way ever. It's going to prove that the entire season was a flop, that Billy Bean was a fraud with this whole schoolyard method. So they put in Scott Hattelberg. Remember the old blown out guy from uh, Chris Pratt? He's disciplined, though. At this point, he does have the lowest swings at first pitches in baseball. He has the most two-strike counts of any baseball player. He's very patient. So this is probably the most high-stress period in baseball in the last 20 years. They put him in to pinch hit, bottom of the ninth. Two strikes go by. Gets a low outside meatball. Swings for the fences. The entire stadium is quiet. You could hear a peanut drop. <laughs> Crack of the bat. It starts going. It's sailing. It's sailing. Chris Pratt, he's hustling. He's like, if this thing drops on the warning track, I'm going to be... I'm hitting it in the parker. He trips on first base. Everybody's laughing at him. He gets up. The ball is over the fence. The A's have their 20th win. They set the record for the first Major League Baseball team with 20 consecutive wins. It's a statistical anomaly. This is impossible. They just broke the game of baseball. Hattleberg gets up, gets to run around the bases. Pied in the face. The whole tradition has the walk-off home run. He thought his baseball career was over as a catcher. Set a record, gave life to this new team. It's a beautiful moment. And how could you not romanticize this, man? Think about the 40,000 people. Everything's on the line, man. That shit is amazing. It's getting to me. You could feel it. And then it just drops in the outfield. (sighs) Will we ever see it again? Lewis is a great writer. It's the perfect sport for nostalgia. Let's go to chapter 8 to tie a bow on this story. That's kind of like the big crescendo finish chapter eight is called the speed of an idea and so they lose the next game but they have the longest winning streak ever that legendary 2002 season wrapping up billy bean for some reason doesn't seem that happy he goes my shit it doesn't work in the playoffs my job is to get us to the playoffs and then whatever happens from there is luck for people that know the fall season of baseball it basically is a toss-up what happens penultimate game of the season billy was upset that they lost it to the twins a much inferior team they didn't even make it to the playoffs so he's going now everybody thinks my method is bullshit you know billy he hates losing more than he enjoys winning he seriously did just turn baseball on its head anybody that doesn't embrace his method now is a dinosaur you're going to get beat out on 20 game win streaks probably in the first half of the season next year great name for the chapter the speed of an idea after the 2002 season bill bean was flown out to boston you know given the whole treatment they offered him a 12.5 million dollar salary for five years highest sum ever offered to a general manager in baseball He's the first player to be a manager. This would definitely beat out Podesta's youngest manager. Paul Podesta would have became the next manager for the A's, so the team would have been in good hands. 
Billy Bean decides to turn it down. He's like, I, I need to prove to everybody that the A's was my team and the dynasty. He can't see the forest for the trees or recognize that he is the next iteration, the Chadwick, the Bill James. There's the Billy Bean now, the guy who actually took the dive. Goes back with the A's for end of the book. I think he's still trying to win it out there. They drafted Kevin Euclid, who was notoriously one of the best come-ups because he could get a walk from a four-foot strike zone. <laughs> he could, like, convince the ump that everything is a ball. This guy's a wizard. I told you earlier, in 2004, Boston wound up winning the whole enchilada with this method. So we're kind of seeing at this current point in baseball, what the hell do I know? It is the monetary method combined with the derivative system. I never really explained that. <laughs> derivative, you give a point to everything the player does. So it's not just this guy could run a 6-240. It's like, okay, how much of the whole pie, 100% of a player, does that make up? And then once everything has value, you can derive the entire worth of a player. It's like when your boss makes you take a performance review and it gives you a little score in every single thing. That's deriving a value, and it can much <laughs> more soundly break down the game of baseball than the old method. Really interesting time. It's a developing sport. It's not just whether they're going to put up fences around the first and third base. Not in America. On the back of your ticket in fine print, it says there's a good chance you get hit in the head with a flying bat. <laughs> you get sued by the franchise if you get hurt in our stadium. Baseball is one of the most American sports. It's literally a scary parallel to the market. There are the new, <laughs> like we talked about, the refungables today. Man, it's an adapting game. We need Michael Lewis. Can't get a higher endorsement from me. <laughs> not Really not a happy ending here. Billy Bean, big drinker, isn't married to his wife anymore. His... He doesn't have custody. Michael Lewis is going. People can say baseball isn't interesting, but with the combination of personal computers, sabermetrics, and the Podesta method, we can see the most exciting matchups in sport history. Those who find success over the long term do so by minimizing luck as much as possible. A real Georgist, Austrian economic idea to end it on michael lewis moneyball great movie wholesome you could show it to a kid has great undertones and dialogue a lot of messages you could take home here we are middle of may we have jeremy stieglitz globalization and its discontents this one probably should be on patreon behind a paywall we are going deep on the World Trade Organization. Stieglitz actually worked for the World Banking Organization, oversaw NAFTA, oversaw the Soviet Union turning into a capitalist system, and he is discussing a lot of this economics will go deeper on and how it actually works in terms of money, not just balls and strikes. We're going deep on the entire topic, homogenization of culture. We will become one, the singularity. It's going to be a fun topic, a Nick's nonfiction classic. Also, check out the Patreon. We have a video going up. 
talking about lifting gym culture. It's a good time. Thank you guys again for checking out Moneyball. It was a fun show. Looking forward to next week. I'll see you all then. My name is Nick Muniz. Later. <laughs>